Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, thank you for taking my email. I want to know if I improve who I am and my sense of self-esteem, will that be enough? Well, that is an interesting question. And actually, Robert, who wrote me that email, is like right on top of things. Let me tell you what I believe. You know that ever since people have done mental health therapy, they've wanted to improve the self-esteem. And between my sexual addiction training through ITAP, which is... Patrick Carnes Training Institute. It's the International Trauma and Addictions Training Institute, an amazing organization. And then I have APSATS, A-P-S-A-T-S. Let's try this again. A-P-S-A-T-S. That is the partner training group. And really, they both believe in the same thing, and that is, even though the addict carries the shame, either he has to get healthy enough to let go of the shame and work on the self-esteem, or his partner needs to know that so much of his rehabilitation is the two of them working on self-esteem. And the number one way that he can work on his self-esteem is by reassuring, validating, and normalizing his partner's experience. 
Okay, so if you're a sex addict and you're listening to this you, and you don't have somebody in your life, then you got to say, okay, what can I do to build and boost my self-esteem? And there are lots of different resources. Um, one is the Self-Esteem Workbook, great resource. One is my uh, workbook. It's called Creative Coaching for the Client, 65 Empowerment Skills and Strengths to Take You to That Next Level. You can go to www.sexhelp.com and find it, or you can go to carolthecoach.com and find that manual. It will help you build your self-esteem. Isn't that amazing that if somebody works on their self-esteem, they can work on their addiction? Now, if you're a single guy or woman and you don't have anybody in your life, not only do you need to do the work on self-esteem, but you've got to do the recovery tools. But if you are in a relationship with somebody then the key to building who you are is validating, normalizing, and reassuring your your partner that you are really changed. And you know what? That can be very, very difficult when you yourself aren't even sure that you can do the next right thing. If any of you are listening to me right now, I got to tell you, I got this virus, and it has made my tongue and the back of my tonsils really, really thick, and my ears, nose, and throat doctor says, Carol, it's just a virus. It'll be gone in six weeks, and this is week number five. So I have 14 more days of this. Please accept kind of my wacky way I'm talking and know that, you know what, things happen in life. And I know you can hang with me while I talk a little thick. And um, I'll try to get through this so that hopefully in a month I will be lots, lots better. Regardless, if I talked like this for the rest of my life, I would know that I had good self-esteem. How would I know that? Well, A, I know my strengths. B, I know my weaknesses. C, I don't beat myself up about those weaknesses. And D, I work hard on improving Whatever I do. As an addict, are you somebody who knows your strengths, you know your weaknesses, you work hard on being the best that you can be? That's so important. And again, if you have somebody that you love, do you validate, um, reassure, and really empathize with your partner. That's the key to building self-esteem. And when you do, that can remove remove or um, readjust 
equilibrate a lot of the damage you have done. Here's what I believe to be true, is that not everybody accepts everybody's imperfections, but when you have a sexual addiction, it's like this innate thing inside of a partner that they know, hey, this is not the guy or the gal that I married, and I want to get to the real person. And so they hang in there a lot longer than the average person to try to figure out what that is. Now, some people actually call that codependency, but I don't, and my organization, APSATS, doesn't. We know that that is a, is a partner, a spouse, who understands that maybe you need a little more structure. Maybe you need the boundaries uh, spelled out to you so that we can get back on the right track and everybody can feel better. All right, so that is the key to good self-esteem. And again, I'll give you an exercise. One of the things that I ask my clients to do is to come up with 50 personality strengths, 50 things that they like about themselves. Uh, Not roles. I don't want to hear you're a good dad or you're a good mom. or I don't want to hear that um, you're a good worker. But what are the personality strengths that take you to the next level? That might look like I am persistent, I am tenacious, I am disciplined, I am loving, I'm caring, I'm compassionate, I'm empathetic. So think about 50 words that describe your personality. And when you do that, I promise you that will help to build your self-esteem. In addition to that, then you've got to stop your negative self-talk. If you're a partner listening to the show or you're an addict listening to the show, you and I both know, in general, the normal person has 60,000 thoughts a day that are negative. Um, They may be mildly negative, like, oh, I hate that I'm late again for work. Oh, I look fat in this dress. Oh, I don't make enough money. Oh, this pen is going to run out of ink. Oh, I should have thought about that sooner. Oh, I'm really a terrible parent. You know, those negative thoughts chip away at who you are. And so when you feel them, when you hear them, when you see them, you stop and you get more realistic. And that might look like, that might look like, oh, I'm a terrible parent. And then you rephrase and redirect and say, you know what, I feel ineffective right now, but I love my kids, I really care about them, and I'm focused 
on how they're doing. Or if you say, I have messed up my wife's life, you might say, I absolutely have hurt my wife, but I can prove to her whether she stays or whether she goes, I can prove to her that I am going to be the best person possible. If you're in a gay relationship, you might say to yourself, you know what, I have created so much drama, I just want to get out of the relationship. And then you say, you know what, this is the first relationship where I've tried to be honest, and so what I'm going to do is stick in this relationship and be the person I want to be maintaining the integrity that I want to maintain. And if it doesn't work out, it wasn't meant to be. But hopefully it will be worth the effort. Now, do you hear the difference in that? I mean, you really can make a difference in your self-esteem if you talk to yourself in a realistic, healthy, and gentle way. Now, I am interviewing an amazing author, Rebecca Rosenblatt, and she and I have the same um, certification. She is a certified sexual addiction therapist. She is a trauma counselor. She's a sex therapist, and she has written a, a new bestseller called Overcoming Betrayal, The Breakthrough Therapeutic Approach a couple's guide to healing from both perspectives. And she's going to talk a lot about what is sexual addiction. You know, what are the myths? What do we believe? What needs to change? How can we make things better? And it can be very difficult to know that. There is no doubt about it. And so I'm super excited to have her on the show so she can talk some about, you know, what do you need to do to get healthy? How do you manage your life if you have a sexual addiction? She's not just there for the sex addict. She also works with the partner. Hence, a couple's guide to healing from both perspectives. And she has formulas formulas that actually absolutely work. She talks about the different types of attachment disorders, you know, whether you are whether you relate in kind of a dismissive, detached way, or perhaps your attachment style is one where it's kind of insecure and avoidant. You know who you are. Do you avoid and dismiss? Are you disorganized? So it's important to know about yourself. And Rebecca is going to help us to talk about how do you overcome betrayal and how do you heal with another person This book that she has written, Overcoming Betrayal, The Breakthrough Therapeutic Approach, A Couple's Guide to Healing from Both Perspectives, is great for the addict and 
his or her spouse. So I am real excited. She's authored seven books total. This is an expert in the field. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I am so excited about all the work you do and being part of it tonight. Well, and you are amazing. I mean, you have obviously made it your mission not only to write, but to get out there and disseminate information across the world. Tell me, what made you decide that you wanted to do this work? Well, I have been doing uh, couples work for a very, very long time, and I discovered more and more cases where we're seeing betrayal, a lot of pain, even people close to me, a lot of pain, and I made it my mission to really connect with those people and do my part in helping them find their way out of it and having uh, healthy coping skills so they could get the best out of life, because ultimately you and I both know that pretty much any relationship can be saved. Um, It's just a matter of both parties being fully committed and having the right tools and the right help. So I really am excited about being part of that. Well, and you should be because obviously you give a lot of people hope, strength, and recovery. Now, tell us, what is your definition of sexual addiction? Sexual addiction is an illness where sex is used like a medication to numb out emotional discomfort. Uh, Basically, the brain produces neurochemicals that act like any other mind-numbing drugs. So basically, if someone was raised in a situation where there was a lot of trauma, where they had a lot of uncomfortable feelings, they didn't know how to deal with them, they learn to self-soothe. Um, so it's a whole process that gets hardwired. And fast forward as adults, if we feel similar feelings, it's an escape, an autopilot coping mechanism. And it's a compulsion where even if the person wants to stop the behavior, they can't, despite the best interest because of how the brain has rewired itself. But fortunately, we know that it can be treated, and what the brain can learn, it can unlearn, and it can learn new things. So that's the exciting part about the whole line of neuroplasticity. Well, no kidding. So, so then what are some of the myths about sexual addiction? I'm so glad you asked that because there are so many of them, and I think media doesn't help whenever all these um, uh, celebrities, um, they are caught, people have absolutely no empathy or understanding, and they just go on a roll. One is that sex addiction is about quantity, so they think if someone wants it a lot, they must be an addict. Um, But we know that if someone has just a high sex drive, but they cope with it in a very healthy way, they can stop and turn the one. It hasn't become a compulsion, and it's not impacting other areas of their life. And no, it doesn't classify sex addiction, because in sex addiction, there has to be that compulsive component, and it does start to take over other areas of one's life eventually. Another thing that really bothers me is when people confuse um, uh, sex offending with sex addiction and call sex offenders sex addicts. Sex offenders, they're very, very different. They're into paraphilias. Um, They can be sociopathic without remorse. 
and they can even have antisocial personality, but they don't generally have that compulsive component that we see with um, with sex addiction. Um, another thing is when people say promiscuous people are all sex addicts. While many sex addicts can be promiscuous, not all promiscuous people are sex addicts. This is sort of akin to all poodles are dogs, but not all dogs are poodles. Um, many promiscuous people were sexually abused as children, uh, and that makes them feel debased, devalued, and they think that that's, sex is the only uh, thing that they have of value, so they can often use it as coinage to obtain love, acceptance, validation, what have you. Um, and many of them don't even necessarily enjoy it all that much. It's more performance-based. Um, and last but definitely not least, someone who is cheating is a sex addict, and that's not necessarily the case either because we know that unless they're serial cheaters or um, they're cheating simultaneously, then it doesn't necessarily class as addiction. I also want to say that sex addicts are not bad people. It isn't a moral or a characterological disorder. As I've mentioned, it's more a neurological coping mechanism. Um, so they do live in many contradictions. They can be really good people who love their families, but then they take time away from them to engage in harmful behaviors. And the contradictions drive them crazy as much as they drive the families crazy, and it's painful to both sides. Well, you know, so many people wonder, how can he or she love me and participate in this mm-hmm. behavior? So how would you explain that, Rebecca? Well, you know, um, let's look at another addiction. Um, uh, let's say alcohol as an example. So let's say mm-hmm. a woman uh, loves to have her her wine, uh, but she gave it up when she was pregnant and she gives birth to a, a beautiful baby. She's nursing the child. She stops drinking. And then one day the baby's just driving her absolutely crazy, and she thinks, oh, you know what, I'll just take a little bit to calm my nerves. And she drinks a couple of glasses. Now she can pass this on to the baby. She may sleep through the baby being distressed. She could be coming down the stairs. She could take a tumble. She could hurt the baby in many, many ways. Um, So it's not the healthiest thing to do while she's taking care of this child. Does that mean she doesn't love the child? Absolutely not. She could really love the child and still engage in a very unhealthy coping mechanism Um, to cope with her own discomfort, with her own state of mind, and thereby jeopardizing this little baby who's in her care. So if I were to sort of take that example and uh, apply it to sex addiction, a person can really, really love their partner, and when they are distressed, they're trying to amp down their feelings, not amp them up, and being with their partner can sometimes amp them up. And we can't choose just the good feelings and, you know, get rid of the bad feelings, um, we, if we are getting rid of feelings, we get rid of feelings altogether. So when someone is distressed, instead of going to the partner, and this is so painful for the partner because they say, why didn't you come to me? Even if you were looking for a sexual fix, why didn't you come to me? Uh, but the whole point of sexual addiction is the addict isn't indulging to feel better. They're indulging to feel less and going to the partner may amp up their feelings. So I think that kind of captures the essence of the contradiction, uh, but very, very painful for the partner. Yes, absolutely. And and it can be so devastating because it's hard to understand how somebody can compartmentalize their feelings mm-hmm. and love their family, love their wife, love their kids, and love their addiction all at the same time. 
So mm-hmm. now you wrote this great book, and I'm telling you, it's Overcoming Betrayal, The Breakthrough Therapeutic Approach, A Couple's Guide to Healing from Both Perspectives. And I especially love it because it isn't just for the sex addict. It isn't just for the partner. It's for both of them to heal. Tell me a little bit about the premise of this book. So one of the things that I really wanted to do, pretty much what you just said, is there's a lot of books out there, good books uh, out there, um, where there's the addict's journey, their recovery, and what they need to do um, to get better. And then there are books that empathize with the partner and the stages they go through and help them with their own recovery work. But while they do side-by-side work, I was finding many of my clients, they really weren't getting what the other party was feeling. They weren't really getting what the other party was going through, what kind of work they were doing, why they were feeling what they were feeling. So there was a bit of a disconnect. Even though both of them were working with remarkable books, there was a disconnect because there was nothing really that was capturing um, both of them and giving them an insight into each other. And we know that both parties are in a lot of pain. Um, So I was very passionate about coming up with a book that would do just that. And because there are a lot of running themes, I created composite characters, an addict and a partner. Hundreds of people went into each and following the journey. So sort of theory and story, uh, each chapter is what each party is feeling, why are they feeling, how to navigate it. Um, I gave the manuscript initially to a lot of my couples and even individuals, some addicts and some partners who were stuck, and I said, be brutal with the manuscript. Tell me what I need to do to be able to accomplish what I'm hoping to accomplish. And oddly enough, they said it helped them become unstuck. So I felt really, really blessed that what I was hoping to do was already happening. Um, and just being able to see what the other party is feeling and being able to validate it um, we know that um, both you and I know that when we're working with a partner, the place where they're stuck is they feel the addict doesn't get my pain, the addict doesn't get how devastated I am. And once they feel that the addict actually gets their pain, that's when their healing can begin. And many partners also get stuck in inadvertently causing pain to the addict so they can experience what that feels like, um, not intentionally being mean or anything like that, but that's just a process, that's human nature. A lot of people go there, and that doesn't help either. Um, So the whole idea behind the book was capturing that. I also wanted to, um, you know, go a little bit deeper, family of origin stuff, attachment style stuff, and all the other things that impact us so that each party could understand how the other person came into being because we know that the addiction drops its roots long before someone even meets their partner um, when they're kids, in fact. So be able, to be able to understand this is not something that I've caused. This is not because of me. This is there long before me, even though it's impacting me in a huge way. Um, it, 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 and not to personalize it in the sense that I'm somehow responsible or it was done to me. Absolutely. And, you know, you this book talks about kind of the psychological issues that both parties face as well as the neuroscience behind sex addiction. So talk a little bit about rewiring the brain. 
Um, so imagine if, you know, there's a child who's constantly distressed. So it could be because they live in a chaotic environment or it could be because they live in a um, place um, where they're repeatedly neglected or there could be abuse. It can be sexual, it can be emotional, it can be uh, psychological, any form of abuse. Obviously, this child will be distressed and there's no one there to teach them how to cope with those um, those really powerful negative feelings. So naturally, the child tries to self-soothe because nobody's soothing them, nobody's teaching them healthy ways of coping. And when the child tries to self-soothe, if they repeatedly soothe in a way that works for them, it can start to rewire the brain. Uh, when a child is very young, the two things that come to mind, one is food, where a person can turn to food, and this is how you get the emotional eater. The other is sex. A child may accidentally discover that uh, touch feels pleasurable um, on their own or maybe somebody introduced it to them even though it was in a, an abusive context because a body responds the way it's supposed to respond. If they discover that or maybe they came across pornography or lingerie ads or something and while they were involved in that, it took their mind off the constant pain, the fear that lives inside them. It allowed them to escape, it distracts, and even thinking about it caused a distraction. So whenever they're in that place, maybe they're feeling invisible or hopeless or they're feeling helpless or they're feeling that no matter what they do, they're not good enough. And as soon as they start to go there, the brain knows, uh-uh, we know how, where to go with this. The brain hijacks you to place of arousal, and then in autopilot, the person looks for the fix. And if it happens repeatedly, neurons that fire together wire together, and the brain, in fact, does get rewired. And these responses become autopilot where the person isn't even thinking about it. Now, one thing I do want to mention is that a person doesn't necessarily turn to a sexual fix because they were exposed to some form of sexual stimulation. More often than not, that's the case. But if they are feeling a high level of anxiety or if they're feeling um, trauma and fear and their cortisol stress hormone goes up, their heart starts to race like crazy. So what the brain does with it, it hijacks them to a place of arousal, um, almost like uh, a way of taking them to a place where arousal that leads to resolution, that leads to feel-good hormones will cancel out the cortisol uh, or the stress hormone that was there in the first place. So the brain can do the hijacking all on its own to protect the child from living with these high levels of cortisol that can be really damaging. So again, a lot of this stuff is going on. The child may not even be aware and almost in a Pavlovian manner and because the neurons are wiring together, they can go to a place um, without even knowing it, where that becomes their go-to. And then as adults, if they feel similar feelings, hopeless, lonely, um, helpless, um, not good enough, then the brain says, uh-oh, we know what to do here, and it hijacks them to that place so they're not even thinking. And for the partners, they always say, what were you thinking? The sad thing is they just weren't thinking. 
and that's the painful part. And um, the, for this reason, you know, uh, I think Susan Schieber had written that the addict is both the hurricane as well as the home it destroys. So if partners can take one thing away from that is that the addict is also suffering a great deal of pain. Oh, absolutely, and it certainly shows us where the brain does get hijacked. It's not about feeling in terms of empathy or reality. Mm-hmm. It is about that conditioning that occurs that, that hijacks the brain. And so, mm-hmm. obviously, you've worked with a lot of sex addicts and their partners to heal. How do you do that? You know, your book talks about disclosure and it talks about boundaries. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, So there are many steps to it. And, uh, you know, Dr. Carnes has certainly, he has the recovery kit and a lot of books. And there's a lot of remarkable books out there. Um, First of all, the very first thing is, um, you know, when, when the cat is out of the bag, often the partner may have had this feeling that something is off, but they're not certain. Once the cat comes out of the bag anywhere, it can go anywhere. Partly it has to do with the individual's personality, uh, partly with respect to the partner whether or not they experienced trauma before because that can become reactivated. And a big thing is how disclosure takes place. Um, Standard disclosure, which means bits and pieces of information keep coming up, is the worst way of disclosing anything. Um, You know, this is when the partner says, is there anything else? And the addict says, nope, nope, nothing else, And then they until they find out something else. And they say, is there anything else? And then... They're always waiting, even once they have full disclosure. They're wondering, what else have I not discovered? But once I discovered, the addict will admit to it. Um, so this is why it's really critical to work with um, certified sex addiction therapists who know how to, which process to follow. So first of all, it's sort of containing, uh, uh, containing the situation. Uh, it's managing the crisis. It's really working closely with both parties to see what has come up in them, maybe some family of origin stuff, maybe past trauma. And once they're at a place where um, they are in a place where they can actually start to do the work, then something called disclosure takes place where the addict discloses everything that has happened sans the gory details. Details are never important. I've seen so many partners, as I'm sure you have, where they want to know the details. And once you've heard those, you can't unhear them. So it's basically what happened. Was it that the person went maybe to escorts or to strip clubs every week? Did they have sex? Was it protected sex? Was it unprotected sex? It's that kind of stuff. How much did it cost? Um, Once everything is on the table, then they can begin a new phase in their life without any secrets. As long as there's stuff, as, as there are secrets there, you can't really have an open and honest, or even try to have an open and honest relationship. So that's one of the pieces. Then each party needs to have their own boundaries. The partner will need to have their boundaries in what they can and cannot do. For instance, they may not be ready 
to have sex or any kind of intimate, even emotionally intimate contact with a partner. They may need time to heal. Um, they, they ideally should be working on themselves so they can have all sorts of boundaries to keep themselves safe and to protect themselves. But being clear that the boundary is for their safety and protection, it's not to punish the addict. The addict also needs to have boundaries, and this is where, you know, we do the three-circle exercise where the middle circle is like a red light, the abstinent list, the, um, the bottom lines. This is what I don't want to do. And then the next circle is like an amber light where there's boundaries and triggers. Anything from being hungry, tired, stressed, all of those things can kind of weaken the defenses. And then comes uh, um, those negative feelings that can be triggering and from there, the person can be on a roll. Um, so knowing knowing what is it that triggers me, and when you know those feelings are coming and those physiological stimuli are coming, being prepared, having also a really good relapse prevention plan, having fire drills where you know ahead of time what I need to do, et cetera, so you don't go there. So that's important. And, of course, you want to replace your go-to behaviors with healthy behaviors. So that's like the green light, the green circle on the outside. So these are healthy behaviors, um, working out, reaching out to someone, spending time with your spouse or your kids. Um, you know, sometimes the spouse may not be able to spend time with you, but at least reaching out to a friend. So there's all those kinds of things. Um, but the addict also can request uh, that maybe the partner not share this with everybody. A partner needs to have one or two people they can confide in, um, but for them to share everything with everyone is never a good idea because you don't know. Maybe you want to salvage the relationship, and also it can have a ripple effect that can impact both parties and children in particular if you have them. So those are the things that a therapist would go over what to tell, what not to tell. Another thing that uh, couples do at GetGo is a 90 days um, abstinence uh, contract. So the addict will not engage in any sexual activity or even trying to arouse themselves and no euphoric recall, no porn for 90 days. And this is not to teach anybody a lesson. This is basically giving the brain a chance to reboot itself. Uh, dopamine, you know, um, the chemical that, uh, the reward chemical that get, gives us the high. Sometimes it can go into fatigue. Sometimes you need to give it more and more for it to act. So the 90 days just allows the brain to reboot itself and starting with the clean slate. Because that's what recovery is all about. A clean start where you, you have new boundaries, you have healthy behaviors, you have no secrets, you're starting uh, afresh with your brain. And the beauty of that is couples who really stick it out and work through the process, they'll say, as strange as this sounds, this was the best thing because we're closer than ever. And after 10 years or 20 years, we're experiencing that first touch for the very first time. It feels so beautiful. It feels so intimate. Um, so many, many steps to it, and that's why it's a good idea to work with a therapist who is very no, specifically trained to do this. Because you and I are both CSATs, and one of the mm-hmm. things that I have learned in my APSATs training, which, of course, is a partner-sensitive training program, is that mm-hmm. when somebody participates in boundaries and in the disclosure in and of itself, that disclosure needs to happen as soon as possible. I mean, 
We need mm-hmm. to prepare both people for the disclosure, but when an addict can let go of their secrets, when they can be authentic and transparent and honest, sometimes for the first time in a long time, especially if mm-hmm. they've been hiding sexual behaviors as a kid or as a teenager, it it really allows them an opportunity to de- develop intimacy. Now, not intimacy mm-hmm. as in closeness, but intimacy in, as in I want to be close to you because now I don't feel so ugly about myself. Do you experience mm-hmm. that too? Oh, absolutely. It, the, the, the shame lifts. And you see eye contact in a way that's, that's so authentic um, because everything is out there and the guilt, the shame, the hiding, um, you know, the head dropping down. All that starts to change, and uh, it really uh, and and uh, I agree with what you're saying. Intimacy, not necessarily in a sexual sense, but in a in an emotional sense, wanting to connect, feeling good about themselves. And so you're so so right that that is a brand new um, beginning for the addict, and for them it can be a relief. Many of my addicts have shared that you know, strange as it sounds, I have a sense of relief. There's no more secrets. There's no more ways of coming up to do this, that, and the other, and then trying to to cover it up. Um, But they need to remember that once that burden comes off their shoulders with the disclosure, it's in some ways been put on the partner's shoulders. So they're just starting to process it. So there's a bit of a lag and being um, insensitive to that. But I agree with you that the disclosure, as soon as they're ready, the sooner it comes, the better, because sometimes people wait too long, and by that time they're starting to heal, they're starting to connect, and boom, there comes the disclosure. So I think the sooner it can happen, the sooner we can start to get into that place of no secrets and move from there, the better it is. Right. And, you know, many of our addicts that we work with, what we know to be true is that they're good guys that definitely Mm -hmm. got their brain hijacked and they lied to get away with it. They didn't want to let anybody know. They spent years and years and years hiding in shame. But they do want to get honest. They're afraid of the consequences. Mm-hmm. They're afraid their partner will leave them. They're afraid their family will find them disgusting. And so that mm-hmm. disclosure process, if done properly and um, done formally, really allows them to liberate themselves from all the baggage they've been carrying for such a long time. Now, I want to ask you something. Part of my APSATS training, again, says that to build self-esteem in in a sex addict requires that once they get honest, they work on reassuring, validating, and normalizing their partner. And when they develop that kind of empathy with their partner, they feel good about themselves. Have you experienced that in couples therapy? Yes, actually, I have. And it's a tricky place to get to. But once they do, that's exactly what happens. Initially, it's like uh, a lot of people, there's a bit of resistance because the shame starts to resurface. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I've already said that. I've already reassured them. I've already validated them. And I remind them, your partner is 
doesn't enjoy feeling this way. It loves to be free of um, this this constant fear and turmoil and tsunami of emotions that they're experiencing. They don't want to be feeling that. But you have to be cognizant of the fact that they are there because of your behaviors. Even though you did not intend to hurt them, your behaviors have deeply wounded them. So having that in mind gives them the validation and the reassurance. And once they do that, I mean, I had some people that came and where the partner said, uh, so-and-so is here uh, because I think they're sociopath, they have no empathy. And I'm looking at the person and I'm, I'm a little surprised because their body language is telling me something else. And as it turned out, they hadn't even come for a sex addiction. He was a sex addict who was having a difficult time verbalizing and learning how to empathize. And what you just described you pretty much nailed it. Once he was able to do that and he learned what it was like to be empathetic and to connect and how he could, um, he could see a positive response in his partner as opposed to all the negative responses he had been witnessing. It was a miraculous turnaround moment for this couple and indeed many other couples I worked with. Well, and you know, I've got I've to tell you, it is so exciting to read a book that helps the addict and the partner to heal. Again, I'm talking with Rebecca Rosenblatt, and her book is Overcoming Betrayal, The Breakthrough Therapeutic Approach, A Couple's Guide to Healing from Both Perspectives. And, Rebecca, tell us how we can get this book. Um, so it's available in all major bookstores, um, uh, as far as I know, Barnes and & Noble, and, and also it's available on Amazon as well. Um, but uh, as far as I know, all major bookstores have it, but definitely Amazon carries it, um, and um, both in Canada as well as the United States. And indeed, I think you can get it pretty much anywhere in the world because of Amazon. So it is my understanding you can grab it from anywhere. Well, and you just you just mentioned that you're from Canada, and so if people wanted to work with you or attend your workshops or get more information, how could they do that? Well, they can uh, write me or they can go to my website, um, talkwithrebecca.com or relationshipandsexuality.com. I just kept Talk with Rebecca is a little bit shorter, easier to remember. And uh, there's a direct to me. There's lots of free articles um, for downloading, and there's a lot of little video clips from a TV show that I'd hosted. So there's lots of resources out there where they can certainly connect with me um, because outside of the sex addiction work, I also like to do couples intensives because once a couple gets to the place where they, they are in recovery, they're doing really well, they need something else to help them move to a healthy place because they're rebuilding a relationship. Um, so I do a lot of intensives, hold me tight intensives that are based in emotionally focused therapy. And uh, I actually have one coming up this weekend. And this is uh, Dr. Sue Johnson who came up with emotionally focused therapy, came up with these intensives that teach you how to love your partner, how to get out of the negative dances that we get into. Forgiveness is something traumatic has happened, how to work past it, how to have healthy conversations, communication, pretty much a, a map to love 
in a very healthy way, um, in a long-lasting way. And the particular intensive has been translated in 171 different languages. So I'm very happy to be participating in that uh, because I find with my addicts, but even people who haven't struggled with addiction, that they need something to help them build um, a stronger relationship, a more exciting relationship. And um, many of my older couples, they end up saying, okay, we got to send our kids. We wish we knew this stuff 20, 30 years ago. We want our kids to have this information, our adults who's in relationships that they don't go through the mistakes that we made. Um, because a lot of us haven't learned, and particularly with the addict, and often with the partners who can also come from environments that where the emotional needs weren't met, Neither party may have learned how to love in a healthy way while taking care of their own emotional health. So it just sort of helps them um, grasp those skills. Well, absolutely. And you mentioned Hold Me Tight, and you mentioned Sue Johnson. So tell us a little bit about what her philosophy is in terms of couples working together. What I love about Sue's work is um, it's very, very much like what you and I do. It makes sure that everything is normalized and there's no shaming going on. Um, there are many uh, different kinds of um, uh, different kinds of concepts where shame comes in, but Sue is very much into normalizing, and she does not believe in bringing shame, and she even makes. Uh, uh, depending on each other. We're not talking about codependence. We're not talking about clinginess, but interdependence, needing each other um, and, and forming that, forging that bond together and knowing the high impact we have on each other. She does a lot. She has done, I think, about 40 years of research has gone into her Hold Me Tight book, and she talks about how important it is for us to need each other and to know how significantly we impact each other. And I thought that my addicts um, either read the book or they do the intensive. A lot of them had no idea what a significant impact them and their behaviors and um, um, just the way they are around their partner, what an impact it has on the partner. So when they appreciate the impact that we have on each other, it's it's just mind-boggling. It's a major, major transforming moment to realize that and also if my partner is enraged and upset, it's because they've cared so deeply. Um, I'm having an impact on them because they are so connected to me. So it's, it's a really great way of learning um, how as a species, especially as couples, we influence each other. And we need each other. We can't survive alone. See, a joke society says we don't have uh, tusks and we don't have claws and we don't even have to hide. So we're puny lot. We need to stick together. And nowadays when we don't live in a large community, it may just be a community of two or a nuclear family, we need each other more than ever um, emotionally, physically, spiritually. So he talks a lot about that. So uh, I'm really, really excited about being an EFT therapist. Well, and that is what I love about your work and your materials is that you can tell that you have so much hope, strength, and recovery for both addicts and the partners. You believe in the coupleship. You know that they can heal from whatever they've gone through as long as they do the work. 
And so mm-hmm. boundaries and empathy and validation are so very important to that work. Is there anything you would add that you think is primary to who you are and the work that you provide and the books that you you develop and author? Well, I uh, you pretty much nailed it, but I, I keep reminding people to and even um, you know using some concepts of imago therapy to really really try to get each other. And in imago therapy, you know because you have to reiterate what the other party has said, the brain is engaged. So you're not thinking of rebutting. Otherwise, in normal conversation, as our partner is speaking, we're thinking about how are we going to rebut. And if it's a heated conversation, then we can get defensive. Uh, but Dr. Gottman says that the four horsemen of the apocalypse, defensiveness, stonewalling, um, criticism, and contempt uh, can be really deadly to a relationship. So if we're thinking more about how am I going to reiterate what my partner is saying, we're paying attention in a very different way. And we can actually get to know them. We can actually, if we try to hear them, to be influenced as opposed to trying to influence them we can connect with them, and that again feeds into the empathy. I'm really trying to get to know you, and I'm really trying to put myself in your shoes and feel what you're feeling, um, and and that's where a lot of the magic happens. And um, the validation piece also comes out of that. If we don't get what our partner's feeling, we can't authentically validate them, and they get more and more frustrated. And then, you know, the walls start to go up and, you know, there comes the stonewalling piece there. Um, so it, it's, it's just critical if you're trying to connect to really, really be mindful of more of what our partner is feeling and trying to say as opposed to just making our point. Um, you know, in other words, listening to be influenced as opposed to trying to influence. So that's another skill that I work on with my couples. Oh, absolutely. And just to um, summarize what Rebecca said, because obviously you jumped to the number one researcher and um, the man, John Gottman, and his wife have spent more time studying couples, any couples, not just sexual addiction, but any couples, and they have hooked up electrodes, he has had longitudinal studies where he has watched couples that were fighting, were making love, were communicating, were empathizing, and he has said there are four horsemen that contribute to divorce. So as my listeners are paying attention, the four horsemen are, are you defensive in your marriage? Do you criticize or are you criticized? Do you Um, Stonewall, which really means not a power struggle, but that you actually, when you fight, you give up, you walk out, and you don't address the issues any longer. And then last but not least, contempt. Do you have contempt for your partner? Do you dislike them? Do you loathe them? Do you hate them? And he says all four of those can be precursors to not making it, but the number one issue for couples who do not aren't able to make it work is that they do not like each other. And certainly you know Rebecca that when a, when a partner has found out that she's been betrayed and there's all of this 
discovery. She can have immediate loathing and hatred towards the addict. But my experience is that that is, I don't want to say short-lived, but it is temporary. That once Mm -hmm. they get information about what addiction is, once they understand that this man or woman's brain has been hijacked, they're willing to stick around and see if they can make it work for the sake of their relationship, for the sake of the other person, for the sake of the family, the stability. And when they do that, it gives them a little time to determine what is in their best interest long-term. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And and you're right, you know, it is short-lived. And one of the things that in with um, partners I found is just like the addict has to reach that point where they say, I have an illness, I have to do something about it, I need to be in treatment, and they step away from that stage of denial, a partner has to come to that place where they say, okay, it's time for me to see what I can do to to heal, to protect myself, and to move forward. And at that point, indeed, it can be short-lived. The partners that have a very hard time moving past that stage, and it could be just because those four horsemen are there, um, sometimes that can play itself out. Sometimes it can be their own family of origin stuff. That person that is that's stuck in there, um, they need to get to the point where they have to decide that it's time to see how we can move forward. And that's when all the healing and all the couple stuff, and like you said, there's so many, many reasons to try and salvage the relationship. So only a partner can make that decision for their own journey. No one else can make that decision for them. And um, as therapists, it's really um, lovely when we're invited into that space and we can help the partner um, find that safe space where they can make those decisions and move forward. Um, And I'm really glad that you elaborated on uh, John's um, Horseman, because he also talks about um, the flip side being um, uh, uh, putting a positive spin and also mutual admiration and how critical that is. And um, that's another thing that as couples are rebuilding, you know, avoiding the four horsemen, but also showing each other mutual admiration when you get to that place. It's not going to happen early on, obviously, but as people are healing, the mutual admiration piece is critical. Uh, One of the things that I say to couples is that, uh, particularly when the partner is afraid and they're kind of looking for things that might tell them that they're afraid, that is uh, is my spouse, is the addict going to act out again? So it's human nature for the lens to be looking for those little clues, and you can sometimes miss the positive clues. So I always tell couples, to use traffic light signals. Green means this is good. Keep it up. Amber alert means, uh-oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting to a place that where I'm feeling uncomfortable. And red means I'm in a place where I'm really, I just need to stop. So what my partner said was that when um, I asked them to say green light, and they have to say it in both directions, when I asked them to say green light to the addict when they're doing something differently, when they're learning a new way of, um, of acting, of being around them, a new behavior, a new way of communicating, being able to say, hey, honey, 
that was definitely a green light moment. They said, I thought initially it was just to uh, let the addict know that I'm, uh, I'm taking note, but in fact it ended up being good for me because I realized, hey, this week there have been a lot of green light moments and not too many amber alerts. And I started to notice that there have been so many positive moments which I would have missed if I wasn't doing the green light. So that's another little tool that I give couples that they um, have a lot of fun with. Um, and it just allows them to look at the big picture and not just be focused on one side. Oh, excellent point. So as we wrap up, I just want to tell you, Rebecca, your book, Overcoming Betrayal, The Breakthrough Therapeutic Approach, A Couple's Guide to Healing from Both Perspectives, is amazing. I recommend that everybody get a copy because it gives you a step-by-step of what you need to do to begin that healing process. And you talk about it from an addict's perspective and also the partner's perspective. So it really is a book that you can share with each other and work on together to begin that healing process. I want to thank you so much for writing this. I want to know when your next book comes out. People can, again, get a hold of you by contacting you at your website. And it's super simple because it's www. And it's talk. Tell me one more time what it is. Talk with Rebecca. There you go. And I really, really appreciate you coming on because, really, you are a person that disseminates information all over the world, and so we are so lucky to have had you tonight. Thank you so much for letting me participate. I really, really admire your show and everything you do. So it was an honor. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Hey, you're welcome, and keep me posted, and I hope we can actually officially meet. That would be awesome. I look forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Next year at the ITAP conference. That's You weren't there this year, were you? I wasn't here. I go every other year because I do APSATS. Mm-hmm. I'm EMDR. You know, you got to kind of yeah, spread yeah. out that, that continuing <laughs> education stuff. But next year I'll be there and I'll be presenting, so we'll see you then. Okay, I look forward to it. Thank you. I cannot thank you enough. I'm just totally blown away. You're so amazing. I look up to you so much that you gave me this opportunity. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm sending you big hugs. Well, thank you so much. And you keep me posted. I want to have you back on the show. That'd be awesome. Take care. All right, you take care. Okay, that. Becca Rosenblatt, and again, she is a registered psychotherapist and a couples counselor. It doesn't get better than that when you can actually work with somebody who is for the coupleship. That can be very difficult when you're working with a sex addict's therapist or a partner's therapist. She cares about you, and so do I. So we need to end. We're already running late. I am so happy to be with you. Uh, Go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Look at my YouTubes on addicts and partners. You know the drill. It is YouTube, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And we'll see you next week. I may have this virus. I may not. But I know you accept me exactly as I am. And that's what I do for you, too. 
We'll see you next week. And as I say at the end of every show, you know, there'll only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be authentic, to be honest, transparent, and to be yourself. Talk to you next week. And by the way, have a great one. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.